Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School in Northern Kentucky. Welcome to the Wednesday Show, Ken. Thanks, Trey. It's great to be back again. No, you know, it is fun kind of getting to do back-to-back episodes. So we do a weekend show, we do the midweek show. And listeners, I know oftentimes the midweek show, we've done a mix of things. And so this week, Ken and I, we're actually going to break our own rules of the show. So uh, we're kind of running away with things today. And the politics, guys, is primarily questions about American politics and policy, just like we say in the introduction. But for this Wednesday, what we want to take a look at is Brexit, because both Ken and I are deeply uh, interested in Brexit and what's been happening this week. And we think that there are, in fact, some important areas where this is going to impact the United States. Um, and maybe that's just me being, uh, being a little bit apologetic for why we're going to take on a, uh, you know, another country's politics. Uh, but let's talk a little bit what, what happened uh, last week uh, with Brexit, because last week, uh, Theresa May went back to the European Union uh, and asked that they could have an extension for Brexit. And this is because uh, May's exit proposal has been shot down now, let's see, three times? Well, twice, twice. by twice. vote, and then the third time was by parliamentary ruling, but not by vote. Yes. Uh, so yeah, so three times, but two votes. And a lot of the problem here is is that is the question of what to do with the border. And what this means is, is they don't want to have a, a hard border with Ireland, but yet if they don't, then they'll continue to be in some kind of arrangement with the European Union. And this means that those who are a little bit more hardline have actually not preferred this particular exit package. Uh, so May... She went back and said, hey, we need, we need an extension. And the EU leaders, they, they gave her a little bit of what she wanted last week. They agreed at the end of last week to delay the departure by at least two weeks. But there's an if. The if is members of parliament have to approve May's deal this week. Uh, and so what that means is if they get that, then they, get, they can be delayed from tw- uh, the 29th of March to the 22nd of May. Otherwise, the UK only has until April 12 to propose a new plan. 
Uh, and so May is now uh, reaching out to her MPs and saying, look, it appears that there's not a sufficient amount of support to bring this deal back. So what do we do? How do we move forward? And if nothing can be decided, then there's going to be a hard Brexit. And things get even more complicated, Ken, because if they get the longer extension, that means they'll actually have to hold European elections because it's time for EU elections. So does England hold, does the United Kingdom hold elections or not? And so all of this makes for a very confusing, a very uh, kind of almost earth shattering in in terms of decision making processes for the United Kingdom. So what do you think about the? I'm going to call it the Brexit mess. It it is it is a mess, and uh, I I would even add a couple layers of complexity to some of the things that you just said. Uh, the the it's not actually clear that May can get a, a a third vote because the 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 parliamentary ruling that stopped her from getting the third vote uh, by uh, John Burke, the Speaker of the of the Parliament, um, he he said that it violates the rules of Parliament to bring up uh, uh, again something that's already been voted down. And so he said she cannot bring up anything that's already been voted down, and there'd have to be significant changes um, to what's been voted down before um, anything could be brought up for a third vote. Um, So that means that May has to do more than just try to get some of the MPs who voted against it before to change their votes. She also has to actually change the substance of the proposal, or I guess the backdoor around that would be I think with a majority vote in Parliament, they could end the parliamentary session. Um, but then she'd have to get the Queen of England to come down to reopen um, the next parliamentary session. Um, and that would be a way that that they could possibly take uh, what amounts to a third vote on the same proposal if it was in a different session. But but then the, the Queen gets involved in everything, and they, they're very hesitant to do that, I think. And what's going to be, I mean, again, you're adding those complications, and it, it's a huge complication. But the elections that are forthcoming, I, I mean, that so, you know, uh, members of the parliament, they don't want to have these elections. But if they're if they get the extension, they have to have the elections because the EU has said, look, you're going to have to hold you're going to have to hold parliamentary elections for for EU seats. Uh, yeah. Yeah, my, 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 I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I, yes. Yeah, I say my my interpretation of that um, is that, you know, when the EU said to England, um, We'll give you till uh, uh, May May twenty second if you're actually leaving, but uh, only till April twelfth, um, or we'll kick you out. Uh, they they uh, I, I think what they're really doing is um, if England comes back and asks for a long extension, and then does hold the European parliamentary elections, uh, I think everybody believes at that point that Brexit will never happen, right? That that that, and I think that's the that's the pressure that so so England could vote to say, well, we want to ask for a longer extension and and that we'll go ahead and hold parliamentary elections now if you give us a longer extension. And then I think the EU would say, well, okay, if you hold parliamentary elections now, we'll give you a nine-month extension. But I think that everybody's sort of assumption there is that if that happens, Brexit's all over, that nobody's going to pick it up off the table after nine months or something. So that's why they they put in this the April 12th date, which is very soon, uh, not as soon as March 29th, which was the original right. crash out date. But they're still they could still be crashed out uh, on, on April 12th if they don't either say, you know, here's we've approved a Brexit deal. Uh, if, if, if the British Parliament doesn't either approve a Brexit deal 
or prove something like a, a second referendum, um, then then they will crash out on April 12th. Well, and, you know, I would normally kind of agree, but the 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 members of parliament who are holding up the exit are not the ones who want to remain in the EU, but the right. ones who want out. And, and, and that, <laughs> right? Yeah. So the, the reason it's failing is because for those, for those voter for those members of parliament, they see this as being too soft of an exit that, you know, they want a harder cut. So, I mean, could it be that they're just, all I can figure is that those MPs actually want a hard exit and they see this as being the fix is to hold out until there's just, there's just a hard cut. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there's the, the thing is that it's um, the, 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 the parliament has no voters who are in both of those groups. Right. So there are, there are remainers who are voting no on all the Brexit deals. And then there are people who want a harder Brexit who are also voting no on all the, the Brexit deals. Um, so if they never, uh, yeah, I mean, if if the people who want the hard Brexit um, just keep keep voting no and 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 manage to stop any majority from passing any vote until April twelfth, then then um, that hardline group is going to win because England will crash out. But I think what could happen before then uh, is that um, it's possible that the the remainers could actually get a majority, right? So it's it's not clear which is going to get the majority. If if there's a majority vote for Remain then there will be a much longer extension. And remain is something that could be voted on uh, in the current um, parliamentary session because that's substantively different than what was already voted on, right? So May still has this problem that she can't even bring back the same deal that's already been voted down. And yet I don't see how she can really change the deal. And the, the EU isn't going to change the deal, even if if, if Britain um, uh, somehow gets gets it together to have a majority vote for for some particular uh, Brexit deal, so I I you know I never thought crashing out was actually going to happen, but I I really am starting to think it looks as likely as any other as any other uh, uh, end game here. Do you think there's a possibility? I know that Tom Watson, uh, the UK Labour deputy, and others have suggested that there needs to be a second public vote. Uh, in short, hey, we'll vote for your deal, but only if your deal goes for a referendum. But I mean, that has to happen quickly. I, I don't even know how that's pragmatically possible. I understand why rhetorically that's a, a good argument to have. Well, it, 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 it's pragmatically possible because the date is if, if they get that vote through parliament, then then that's the contingency where the crash out date gets pushed back to May 22nd. Right. So if, if, if that's true, that's true. Yeah, if, if parliament um, votes that they will authorize a second referendum. Um, then, then, then that, then that um, does that. That's that becomes um, a deal that's agreed by Parliament. Otherwise, it wouldn't be pragmatically possible. But yeah, I think Corbyn, you know, ha- Corbyn has a role to play here that he hasn't played yet. And I think you and I talked about this before. But Corbyn is basically personally a, a Brexiter, I think. But he's the head of the Labour Party, which is the majority of which is uh, re- remain. Re- re- remain, yeah. And uh, um, I, I think if he would call upon all of the uh, Labour Party members to vote remain, um, they'd be able to, you know, with the Tories who want to remain, they'd end up having a, a majority for that, for at least a second referendum, or maybe just for a withdrawal of the uh, of, of the leave application. Um, so if they if they took any of those votes and actually got a majority for it, then uh, I they'd have till May 22nd, but actually Brexit would be over, I think. But but if but if if those votes don't ever get a majority, then I think the crash out happens a lot sooner. 
Now, one of the arguments that runs around that extends larger than just the United Kingdom is that what led to the positive vote to leave the European Union, in other words, to uh, implement Article 50, the withdrawal, the, the, the withdrawal uh, article, uh, was a broader phenomenon that suggests that national borders still do have deep meaning and that uh, nation states uh, should be the primary international political units and that these larger transnational organizations and others are, are have pushed too far. And there, a number of people see this as being what brings Donald Trump to power, see this as part of what's happening in France, what's happening in, in Spain. Do you is there a broader argument to be made that this is one example of the pragmatic problems that occur when, uh, as we call it in the United States, it's one thing to say, hey, this is what we ought to do. It's another thing to say, well, here's the details and how we're going to get it done. So you've had this kind of big push towards nationalism, but now you, now you got to work out the details. So what do you think about those two issues, Ken? Yeah, I mean, I... I First, you know, I think just like in the United States, um, you know, Russian interference had a lot to do with this, that, that Russia is interested in weakening alliances among the Western powers. And, uh, um, you know, so they wanted to support Trump because Trump was interested in weakening our alliances with our NATO allies and other allies. They wanted to support uh, Brexit because that weakens uh, British uh, alliances with, with Europe. And and I think um, Russia put a lot of efforts into both of these campaigns. So I, I think that's a big part of it. And then and then I, I think that um, the, the political theory that, that the nation state is an important unit, um, it's a political theory, but I think to the extent that it resonates emotionally with people, uh, I see that as as an aspect of of, of racism or, or uh, ethnocentrism, and uh, really a very unfortunate development. I, th- I think it's a it's a real development, but a really really unfortunate development. Well, I mean, of course, nationalism is a, is at heart an imagined community of individuals who imagine themselves as sovereign. They imagine themselves as having limits. Um, so you, I guess I, I would love for you to kind of expand on that a little bit more. So do you think nationalism, therefore, is inherently racist? Well, for uh, usually I'd say, I mean, for, for European nations, inherently, I'd say for American, it could be different because we have such a, a diverse populace, right? But I, I think you, the idea of American citizenship isn't intrinsically linked to um, – a race or an ethnicity or, or a national origin, but mm-hmm. in your, in Europe it is right. So, uh, so it can yeah, be, I yeah think, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, and also, I mean, I think the, the, the notion of it, it, it it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's got some logical problems because, you know, England, it's the United Kingdom, right. But it's really only England that wanted uh, Brexit. Um, I guess Wales by a very thin majority also wanted it. Uh, but Scotland and Ireland, um, you know, didn't want it at all, and that's partly because they have uh, uh, nationalisms of their own, right? So, so the the you know the 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 Irish people have national aspirations, the Scottish people have national aspirations, and you know if you start looking at this, well, England, you know, why should we part? Why should the UK be part of the EU? We want the nation state to be our essential uh, unit. Well, then Scotland could say, well, we want it, the nation to be our essential unit, so we're getting out of the UK, and uh, you know maybe North Ireland could say the same, and 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 uh, it, where does it? 
stop. I mean, in our own civil war, when when the southern states seceded, then, you know, West Virginia had to secede from Virginia, you know, because where does that stop? So I think the, the logic of it, you know, leads to complete breakdown of democracy. Yeah, I mean, you know, and this is one that I struggle with because I I don't actually necessarily disagree with that. But I think that the response to that is to say, well, that's all well and good. But if you take that to its logical extreme, then there's no reason to have borders anywhere. Uh, And I think most average people are would find that abhorrent. Um, And I I don't mean that as a a personal position, but the idea that we're going to have a, a singular human race that votes on things, that's all, I, I don't think that has much legs. And I, I think for many voters and for many people, they see that as uh, that what you were promoting there is kind of being the downfall of the backbone of what's made things work. Uh, as a matter of fact, online uh, on Facebook, we had, I thought, a really reasonable article that deeply disagreed with me about how uh, the left is failing, and in, in, in this case, me as well, failing by not seeing how important borders are to people. So, uh, you know, I, I tend to have an agreement with you on the look, well, where do you end? You know, w- what's the smallest unit that gets to have its own national identity? But what about the other direction? What, what, what's the response then to say, well, well, here's where it's then it stops. We're, we promise we're not going to go any further. These people don't get to be included. <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a process, right? But I think I think in, in the it would be difficult to get rid of all borders, as you're saying. But the process that we did here in the United States and that Europe, including England, did in the EU, you know, we, we had 13 colonies and they decided to come together and form the United States. And then other states decided to join uh, the, the United States. Every country in the European Union decided to join the European Union, including the UK. And they did dismantle the borders uh, uh, within the European Union. Right. And, and they they are dismantled. And so, I mean, I, I see that as a, as progress. And uh, it's not to say that, you know, that that has to be done before people are ready to do it. But I think it's a good thing when people are ready to do it. And when they do it, I think it's a good thing that we have a complete borderless internal free trade zone in a very large republic, which is the United States. Right. Um, and the whole EU, including England, is, you know, maybe 30 percent larger than the United States, but not massively larger. You know, and, and uh, you know, we, we pull it off here. Um, and I'm I'm glad that the North won the Civil War. I don't I don't think it would be good uh, for 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 states to be um, thinking about dismembering the United States. I don't I didn't think it was good when Quebec was trying to secede from Canada. Um, you know I I think these the, the idea of democracy um, depends on the idea that you know when people have temporary losses in their policy preferences, they don't just say okay I'm quitting this whole thing I go home. You know you can't run a democracy on that basis. And and these are all um, voluntary associations. Every, every, the, the fifty states are in our union because they agreed to join it. All the all the nations of the European Union are in it because they agreed to join it. So it's not it's not like anyone had these borders dismantled against their will. No, you know, and again, I I have a personal agreement with you on that front. But and I and I think this is where the two of us probably maybe are a little bit have been a little bit. I'll at least say I think I have been a little bit blind to the position that says, yeah, you're absolutely right. They were voluntary associations. The UK comes in, and now we recognize that we can't have 
what we are with an open border and your and this has created outcomes that we prefer not to have and so since it is a voluntary association we we're voluntarily going to say no we're done with this now and what do you say to that well, I'm not saying they don't have a right to. I mean, if, if they go through with the Brexit, they go through with the Brexit. Uh, I'm just saying it's it's unfortunate. It's a big mistake. And uh, and that the that, that really the, the, the idea that the EU went too far with anything, it seems to me very fanciful. I mean, I, I can't really understand what the actual real world practical grievances are. It just seems like people have been, you know, worked up ideologically to think, well, you know, it should mean something to be an Englishman. And, you know, how can I be an Englishman if there's French restaurants and, and Spanish restaurants everywhere and nobody's eating a kidney pie anymore? You know, and I, it, <laughs> it just seems like it's just nonsense. You know, there, there's no there's no tyranny. There's no dictatorship. England wasn't colonized by the European Union. You know, Eng- England is a, a a member that yields tremendous benefits from being there. You know, the the the, the younger generation of of English people, uh, you know, they're they're going to be denied uh, tremendous opportunities by this. You know, in terms of you know they could have gone and studied and worked. You know, anywhere in many countries where they could get the best job, just like you moved on out to Oklahoma for the job that you got, Mm -hmm. you know, imagine if that was in a different country. And so that job was there, but you just couldn't get it. You know, that would, that would be a great detriment. And and that's what people are sort of um, self-inflicting on themselves. So I'm not saying they don't have the right to do it. I'm just saying it's, it's, it's a really sad thing that they would want to do that. You know, and and it's hard for me because I actually, I agree with you, Ken. As a matter of fact, uh, on this show, I think, I don't know if it it was the two of us or if it was myself and Jay uh, had talked about, you know, I think that human capital should be able to move across borders as freely as money uh, capital. Yes. And, and especially once, once, you know, I mean, I see problems with it. Um, I understand the concern about people from very poor countries, you know, Mexico or Central America, you know, coming up here and being uh, willing to work at very low wages that would drive down American wages. I, I get that that raises separate problems, and that's why we don't have free movement of labor across that border. Um, but those are not seriously the kind of problems uh, within the EU any more than those are serious kinds of problems within the, within the USA. Right. I mean, we do have low wage states and high wage states, but not everybody leaves Mississippi and moves to California. Right. Even though they could and they'd probably get more money if they did. You know, it's, it's yeah, like and there's policy prescriptions that you can have to kind of mitigate some of those problems as well. Uh, you know, you, but yeah, but I think that there I think one of the things that I have been grappling with on this issue, the kind of the broad, the broader Brexit issue is just the idea that I think I am some I have been too quickly to dismiss the closed border people <laughs> uh, uh, to, to, the, to the detriment of reading political reality well. Uh, so while I agree with you deeply, actually, Ken, I, I find that to be an important moral position. Uh, I, I think that there are many who disagree just as deeply on the moral position. And that's a, it's a, it's one that I've been grappling with that I think that comes out of Brexit, but I don't think the, I don't think we're going to fix that one right here and today. So what I think we might do is actually finish the show uh, by turning to a listener question. Uh, so Ken, let me read this question. It's a little bit longer. So bear with me. Uh, Alex writes on our Facebook page, 
quote, Hey guys, I had a question. I was listening to an episode of the 538 podcast on the Electoral College. As a matter of fact, they were doing this, listeners, because of Elizabeth Warren last week talking about wanting to get rid of the Electoral College. And he goes on to say, And they brought up the idea of making it, meaning the Electoral College, proportional versus winner take all. Personally, I think it's a pretty neat idea. So my question is this. Let's assume only the two major parties could be on the ballot for the presidential election. What difference would that make on voting? For campaigning? Strategy? I get this is 100% a pipe dream, but I think it's a pretty interesting topic and would make our elections a little less static, i.e. Texas almost always being red, California being blue, etc., etc. Love the show. Keep up the good work. Uh, so uh, a couple of things here on Alex's question is, uh, one is what he's, what he's saying here, listeners, is proportional meaning that electoral college votes would not be winner take all. So if a, a candidate in a general election won you know, 20% of the uh, vote in Texas, he or she would receive 20% of the electoral college votes coming from Texas. So Ken, what do you think about the idea of getting rid of the electoral college. What about this proportional uh, voting? As a matter of fact, one of the things that we had mentioned we need to talk about is just the idea that in primaries, we do a little bit of this. So what do you think about this idea? Yeah. So there's, there's a bunch of ideas wrapped in there. Um, I, I take it that his, the, 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 the part of the question that was, you know, what, what, what if we just assume there's only the two major party candidates and no third party candidates? I'm not sure if that was a proposal that third party candidates not be allowed on ballots or if that was just a simplifying assumption to make it simpler to talk about his main proposal, which is uh, proportionate uh, voting um, in, in, uh, in, in, in the electoral college. Um, I'll just assume it's the latter so that we're, he's not really advocating uh, that 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 we limit the ballot um, only to major party candidates, but he's just saying it'll be easier to talk about his proposal if we make that that assumption. And um, it's true, I, Alex, yeah. because if if you if you if we were to eliminate that and talk about it, one of the immediate possibilities is is that third party candidates would pro not always, but sometimes have to be accounted for when it came time for who's going to win. Right? You might have to have it, it would probably go to the house more often. To be real honest. Uh, and, but yeah, anyway, yeah, it could. yeah, it could. I mean, depending how the proportion was done. So, you know, in Maine and in um, uh, Nebraska, they have a version of this, but they don't do it on straight proportional voting. They, they allocate the um, uh, electoral college votes in those states by congressional district. So it's still winner takes all within each congressional district in those states. But um, but the total number of electoral college votes in Maine and Nebraska um, don't go winner takes all because if one candidate wins in one or two of the electoral districts, even though they lose the other electoral districts, then they're going to get um, uh, one one or two of the uh, uh, electoral votes. And by di- by yeah, electoral be- districts, I mean congressional districts. Yes, I was going to say because in those states, it's not a pure PR, but it's more of a they they spread out the votes on the basis of area. Right. Geography. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah. So, uh, so just a heads so, up, Alex, yeah. a pure P a pure proportional would mean, you know, we're not counting the votes in any particular area inside of a state, but rather we're actually just, it's a pure percentage, right? So if you yeah. get X percent of the vote, you get X percent of the seats. Right. So, so like in Nebraska, typically I think the Democrat can pick up 
one electoral vote in the Lincoln um, Omaha area, and then the Republican gets all the other electoral votes. Um, so that's how they do it there. Um, and and uh, um, so straight proportional voting, you actually do see in a lot of the party primaries. Um, so, you know, in, in some some big states like Texas, you know, if, if when um, I remember when Obama was running against uh, Hillary Clinton in Texas, um, you know, they, they ran pretty close to each other. And that meant that even though there was a huge number of delegates to be won in Texas because it's a large state. Um, you know, it almost didn't matter which one of them won Texas because they didn't win by enough percentage, didn't didn't win by enough percentage for for it to matter much. One of them was maybe going to get one more delegate than the other out of Texas. And that's about, um, what was at stake there? So I do remember, I mean, that was, you know, being a presidential guy, you know, many, many, many Democrats, they really hated that election (laughs) Yeah, Uh, because they saw that as being a... Yeah, yeah, they saw that as a failure that, that you know, they had, they were too proportional, uh, whereas yeah. Republicans, there are states that are proportional, but they're far yeah. more weighted towards winner take all in their primaries. Right. Yeah, it's a real slog through those Democratic primaries because, you know, you typically, you know, have it's really like a, a game of picking up one delegate here, one delegate there, one delegate there, hoping that the margin can slowly but surely increase. And then and then even, you know, once there is a bit of a margin, it's really hard for the um the one who's lagging to catch up because you keep. So I think those are some of the issues. I, I guess my thought about the whole thing would be if, if you're going to go in that direction, it seems like kind of a half measure towards just going to a straight popular vote. And I, I see more benefit to that. And there, there is this thing, the national popular vote interstate compact where um, a number of states have, have, have passed legislation saying that um, if enough states pass this, that they will all give their electoral votes to the national popular vote winner rather than to the um, winner of their own state. And uh, if that happens, it only takes about the 16 largest states uh, passing that to um, transform our system into a popular vote system. And I I tend to think that would be a better, like if you want to go towards more popular vote, I think that's really a better way to do it than trying to work with um, proportional representation within the states. Yeah. I mean, Alex, at the end of the day, the the fundamental question that you have to get at here is i think it's always fun to think about these like you say it's a pipe dream uh you know to think about these ideas and and where they would lead the the fundamental difference here is ought the president to be based on total popular vote which i know that that's a that's a big position now especially in the wake of uh, donald trump uh, or ought presidents actually have to have some geographic considerations regardless of population and i and i really think that that's the bigger underlying debate here that oftentimes gets uh, under talked about and under under discussed because you know, whether you pick this method or that method, you're always going to be picking those methods, or as you're calling it, Ken, kind of a half measure on the basis of what you see to be the answer to that question, right? So if the, if the, if what we want is a majoritarian democracy, then the answer is clear. Anything that moves you closer to having uh, a popularly elected president is going to be a good thing. Uh, and if you are in, in favor of a more regional distributed Republican system, I mean that in the sense of the lowercase r, I don't mean Republican, the party, but uh, uh, Republican meaning non-democratic, where you want to respect not, uh, uh, minority rights, um, uh, numeric minority rights, 
then you're never going to want anything that moves you in that direction because that's actually going to be kind of killing this anti-majoritarian system that is at the heart of a Republican system. So I really think, uh, Alex, that in, in most cases, I, I think those are, that's the more interesting pragmatic debate to have is ought we to be a Repu- ought we to conserve our Republicanism or ought we to be, are, are we trying to transform ourselves to a majoritarian democracy? Yeah, I mean, although interestingly, if you really want to uh, conserve our um, uh, the, the form of republicanism that the framers were thinking of, you'd want to give the the, the the Senate and actually you'd want to have independent um, electors in the Electoral College, too. You wouldn't want them pledged to to vote for particular candidates before they went there. So, you you know, I think our system has already taken a it's lot moved more. That way. Yeah, it's moved towards um, towards trying to make it more reflective of the voters. But it was it was conceived as even a lot less uh, uh, reflective of the voters will than the way it's run right now. No, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. I I don't think that you're going to be able to go back. I, so again, I'm not I'm not taking a side on this. I tend to think that having uh, some geographic uh, considerations prevents some of the issues we were talking about earlier in the show with like Brexit, uh, where people don't feel like their area is represented. Uh, but I understand the appeal of a simpler majoritarian uh, democracy as well. Um, I probably tend towards the side of less or slower change. Um, but I know that's a shock given that I, uh, <laughs> given <laughs> well, my you know, political I'll, positions. I'll say there's, there's a couple things about the electoral college that I think are good um, and would be lost in a move to uh, uh, the national popular vote. Although on balance, I think the arguments for a national popular vote out, outweigh this. But uh, but I think the Electoral College, one thing that it does is by putting a lot of focus on a small number of swing states, that has the um, effect of somewhat minimizing the impact of money on in politics because the retail politicking that the candidates can do in those handful of swing states um, – I think it's it's an equalizing thing, whereas if they had to be campaigning everywhere in all 50 states at once, that would have to be done totally by mass media. So money would play an even bigger role. Um, and I also think to the extent that we've had some close elections and some recount controversies and things like that, uh, the Electoral College puts a, a limit on how many precincts we're really worrying about, whereas it would be every precinct in the whole United States that you'd have to do recounts and have all this and all that if you had a national popular vote. So I, I think those are some benefits of the current system. But ultimately, I think the the current system um, has detriments that outweigh its benefits. And uh, and I think the, the main problem is that, um, you know, the, it, there there is a sort of partisan divide in the in the country right now where the um, the, the Electoral College is going to give a, a, a great benefit to one particular political party, you know, for the foreseeable future. And uh, I, I, I think that's essentially too, um, too much of a problem. You know, you talked about people in, in small states maybe wanting to feel like they're represented. But I mean, I, I think, you know, there's a lot more people in New York and California than in those small states who very justifiably feel like they're the ones who are not represented. So, um, you know, and the so minute I think you said that, problem. you know, that everybody's yeah. antenna in between went up and they said, yeah, and that's exactly why we don't want <laughs> to be. Uh, not that I'm not that I'm you're right. Um, you know, you have to be willing to say. Say that hey yeah the, the 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 majority of people ought not to get represented and that means you have to be able to to look you know New York Los Angeles and uh, and Texas in the eye and say look love you guys but no just because there's a bunch of you you don't get to do this and 
that that's an argument you have to make. But you're right. That's that is effective. Either it's a good thing or a bad thing. But that's 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 the crux of it. <laughs> yeah, that's the crux of it. We agree on that. Yep. Yeah. Well, on that note, Alex, I hope that we have uh, wandered around your answer a little bit, and I hope that we've gotten at you. And I'm really appreciated that you ask us a question. Please ask us again anything you'd like. We love taking on listener questions. Listeners, if you would like to reach out to us, remember that you can reach out to us at mail at politicsguys.com. You can also hit us up on facebook.com slash politicsguys page, and you can get us on Twitter at politicsguys. We always take and enjoy responding to your questions. Kent, I hope you enjoyed the show today. I enjoyed uh, talking with you on this Wednesday. Yeah. Thanks so much, Trey. Well, listeners, I would say that if you loved the show, please rate us on iTunes, send us this episode to a friend, put us out there. It's what makes it possible. What also makes it possible is your contributions. Please send your contribution, head to politicsguys.com slash support or head to politicsguys.com and click on the support link. It is your contributions that make this show possible. And each weekend you get a bonus show when you become a supporter. As a matter of fact, last weekend, Ken and I has a bonus show. So if you support the show today, you'll have access to our bonus show on all kinds of interesting things about us reading. So I'll only leave it there. And instead, I'll finish the show by saying that the executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Murano, Benji Fishman. Today's show was produced by me, Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday, and I'll hope you'll join us then.